All right. Well, again, let me just say good morning to you and welcome here again to our first service um, of New Heritage Church. And as I mentioned before, you guys know this, we are a church plant of South Caraway, and that's where we have actually been going through the Gospel of Luke line by line for well over um, the past year. And we're actually to the point in the Gospel of Luke that we're about 70% done with it. And so in talking through, what are we going to teach first? What are we going to do? I mean, we all kind of decided that since we're so close to finishing Luke, it'd be kind of silly to do something different. And so that's what we're going to do first. So we're going to spend the next several, knowing me, five years, I don't know, but we're going to finish the Gospel of Luke and then do something else. But um, even as, you know, as people come in and, and maybe they haven't been here for the whole thing, the good, the good thing about the Bible and expository preaching and teaching is even if you haven't been here for the whole thing, if it's properly taught, you can still be brought up to speed and understand um, what's going on. And so with that, we are going to be in Luke chapter 16 this morning. Um, and it's actually on your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. We, we had uh, Miss Melissa put the text there for us. We all need to give a hearty thank you for Melissa uh, for doing those bulletins for us. But with that said, Luke 16 verses 14 through 18. And I want to start by pointing out something, and that's that there aren't really a whole lot of things in this life that are certain. Um, There's not a lot of certainty in life, but one thing that I at least believe is pretty certain is that by and large, people in our society and in our world have a pessimistic view of society and of the future as a whole. Um, Even as Christians, it's all too common for us to walk around with our heads down like we're Eeyore, uh, like this world is on our last leg, and at any time now, it's going to topple over and... You know, the Lord's just going to burn this thing up and it's going to be over. And the question that we need to ask this morning is where does this pessimistic view come from? Where does that originate? And, and, and you know, obviously we, we wouldn't expect unbelievers to have a positive view of the world, but uh, there are a bunch of Christians running around and it's still that way. So why is this negative outlook and hopelessness for the future such a large aspect of the human experience? And if I'm being honest... And I don't mean to take any shots at anybody. I have brothers who hold to this position I'm about to talk about that I love dearly. I would lock arms with them and proclaim the gospel. However, with that being said, I think one major contributing factor is that many, many Christians hold to a defeatist view of eschatology or or the study of end times. And, And what I mean by a defeatist view is this. They believe that Christ and his church will be defeated throughout the course of human history, and then Jesus wins in the end. So, in other words, the short version is that things in our world will get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back, raptures the church, and then he just destroys the whole thing. Now, we don't have time this morning to really labor out the details on all these eschatological views, but I want to make a point here. The research I found concerning these statistics, it really was all over the place. But one study in particular that seemed to be kind of in that middle space, and I thought was probably roundabout right, um, found that 65% of professing Christians hold to a premillennial or a defeatist view of eschatology. 65%. Um, Now, I'm leaving the all-meal crew out this morning because there's a lot of nuance in that camp, and some could go either way, right? But... There are over 2 billion professing Christians in the world today. 2 billion. So what that means is that among the one group of people in this world who ought to have hope and joy and be confident about Christ and the future of his church, based on my Harrisburg math, at least 1.3 billion of those Christians are running around with a negative hope for human redemptive history. Now, this morning as we examine our text, and I'm going to preach kind of funny that we started here because this is probably the hardest sermon I've ever prepared. Um, 
But we will see one particular aspect of where this defeatist view comes from, which is the passing away of the heavens and the earth. And we will see why their interpretation is wrong and what the implications of that are for us and, and as, as for human history as a whole. So, in light of all that, if you would, if you're in the Gospel of Luke, please stand with me as we read Luke 16, verses 14 through 18 this morning. And the word of the living God says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, um, I pray simply this morning, God, that as I preach your word, that you would just speak through it. Um, Lord, nobody needs to hear from me. God, we all need to hear from you. So I just pray that you would teach us and grow us and help us to love you more through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So what we see there starting in verse 14 is the text says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Well, the, the question we got to ask right out of the gate is, what things are they talking about? Um, what, what did they hear? Well, if you were to look back at verse 1 there, you know, what, what has been said prior to this, you would see that Jesus tells a parable about a dishonest manager. Now, a parable, you guys know this, it's simply a story um, that teaches a heavenly principle. It has a heavenly meaning. And in this particular parable, what we see is that there was a manager who was abusing his position. Uh, basically, he's living high on the hog at the expense of the rich guy that hired him. And, and the rich man finds out about it, and he comes to him, and he removes that manager um, from his position due to his infidelity, due to his taking advantage of it. And at the end of the parable in verse 13, we really learn the point of the whole thing. And the text says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says, You cannot serve God and money. So with that in mind, now we can look at verse 14 and we can say, Aha, this makes sense, right? Um, because it tells us here that the, the Pharisees were lovers of money. So in other words, this parable is about them. They are like the dishonest manager. That's the point. And, and really, if you build this, what he said here off of chapter 15, it makes perfect sense. Because what was the theme? You guys remember back of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. What was the theme of all those? That heaven rejoices in salvation, right? But what were the Pharisees doing? When all these tax collectors and sinners were coming to Christ, the text told us in Luke 15, they were grumbling. They were complaining. They, they didn't like it because they thought they were the holy ones, right? They were good with God, and they don't want anything to do with this riffraff over here or this Jesus. And Jesus gave those three parables to expose their hearts and to show them that they did not have the same affections as God did, like they thought they had. You see, they may have had that outward appearance of godliness, but on the inside, they were dead and cold toward this group of people that they should have been showing grace to. And so Jesus rolls right off of those three parables in chapter 15, and he, and he drives home the point that the Pharisees are like this dishonest manager. He's saying, guys, this is you. This is you. You see, God had given the Pharisees a position of leadership and of prestige. They had status, right? And what did they do with it? They were abusing it. 
They had abused it. Rather than being faithful with the things that God had placed them over, they were using their position for selfish gain, to make money, and as we're going to talk about, to run around chasing women. Um, They were doing these things. And what did the master do in the story? And subsequently, what is God getting ready to do to these Pharisees? Well, if you look back at verse 3, it answers that. It says, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? So you see in verse 14, what we see there is that the Pharisees knew this was about them. They were lovers of money. So what Jesus is communicating to them by this parable is that because of your infidelity, Pharisees, you are about to be removed from management. In other words, you're about to be knocked off your position. And, and how do they react? Well, the text tells us that they ridiculed Jesus. Other translations um, say that they sneered or they scoffed at him. Basically... They were downplaying his words in a mocking way. This is like our equivalent to like, yeah, okay, Jesus, and then rolling our eyes. Um, They didn't take him seriously. And this just goes to show how far gone these guys were at this point. Because God incarnate is in front of them. They're looking him in the eyes, and he's speaking to them, and they are scoffing at God. As if they're the holy ones, right? As if they know better than he does. Make no mistake about it, this was blasphemous. And so he goes on in verse 15, and he says, or it says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus, and Jesus is having none of it. He comes out here in verse 15, guns blazing, and he calls them to the carpet, because he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows the heart. Um, Now, in our typical Christian vernacular, in our conversations, most of the time when we're talking about justification, the doctrine of justification, we mean it in a salvific sense. We're talking about our right standing before God, right? We're justified. We're declared not guilty, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what we normally mean. But here in the text, Jesus appeals to another kind of justification. That's not what he's talking about. And he appeals to justification before men. So what does justification mean in this sense? How would we define it? Well, what it means is to show, to evidence, or to display righteousness. In other words, it's like validating your faith before men. That's what he's saying here. Um, They're they're trying to show their faith to the people around them. And this subject of faith and justification before men, granted, it it is a tricky one. And I'll show you why um, from the book of James. So if you look there in James 1 verse 22, you read this. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So in other words, James' instruction here is that when you and I hear the word of God, that's the first part. Don't just be hearers, right? So when we hear the word of God, the things that we hear, they ought to travel all the way from our heads and they ought to reach our hands. And what do I mean by that? You don't just hear, but you do. The hearing should result in action. In other words, in God's economy, Faith rightly learned is faith rightly lived. Faith rightly learned is faith rightly lived. And James continues this point in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. But keep looking down to verse 17. He says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, there are two sides to this pendulum because it could swing either direction. Um, And we have to address both. 
this morning. Because on the one hand, the point here in James is crystal clear. There's no confusing this. If you and I, if we would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I've been saved, I know I'm going to heaven. All these things, right? I'm good. But that profession of faith that we say is not evident by the way we live our lives, then we have a dead faith. It's empty words. It's meaningless. You see, we can say we're Christians all day long, but if our lives are not being lived in submission to King Jesus, then we are liars. And our profession of faith is empty. Simply put, if we don't have a desire to obey God, it's because we're still dead in our sin and we are at war with Him. But that pendulum swings the other way too. And that's what we see here with these Pharisees. Because Jesus tells them, you justify yourselves before men. In other words... You claim to love God. And get this, they were doing stuff in their life to evidence that, right? Um, Before other people, people looked at them. These were the holy guys, quote-unquote holy guys of Israel. They stood in the street corners and prayed, right? They were the religious leadership. But look what he says. He says, but God knows your heart. So you're doing all these external things, but God sees right through it. That's what he's saying. He's saying all the stuff you're doing, the praying, the fasting, the tithing, all these rituals, the clothing, it's a sham. It's a, you're frauds. He, he says you're doing these things to be esteemed by man. You're living your life seeking the praises of those around you while on the inside your hearts are cold and they're turned away from God. And this is exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew 23. If y'all are familiar with 23, that's the chapter where he's just like, He's like walking tall with a two-by-four, and he's just wearing these Pharisees out one after the other, not physically, but in his, in his uh, speech. But he says in, in Matthew 23, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. It's a show. You're polished up on the outside, and you're dead on the inside. And so, our application point here this morning in this portion is to make sure that we are not living on one side or the other, right? Because neither side that we've talked about has authentic, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So, on the one hand, is your faith dead this morning? Uh, Do you look back at a time when maybe you prayed a prayer, or you walked an aisle, or maybe supposedly you got saved at Vacation Bible School? That was my story. I was a false convert. But you're looking to this this event, this marker, as evidence that I'm saved, right? And all the while you're looking to that, there's no evidence in your life that you are truly uh, saved by the Lord Jesus, that you truly love Him. And we see this all the time. We see people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they're not involved in church. They don't spend any time in the Bible. They never pray. They're not looking to take care of their neighbor for the glory of God, and so on and so forth. They don't do anything for God, but they claim to love Him. And the question is, is that us this morning? Is that me? Uh, Am I claiming to be a Christian without any marker of that being true in my life whatsoever? Or are we on the other side? Uh, Are we outwardly committed to the things of God? Right? Outwardly showing that we belong to the Lord while inwardly we are turned against Him and indifferent and could care less. Um, In other words, do you seek the praises and esteem of your neighbor but could care less about the approval of God? And if you find yourself in either camp this morning, then the solution is simple. It's repent, repent and believe um, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of you know the story. Jesus is the God-man, right, who was born of the virgin. He lived that sinless life to go and die a substitutionary death on a cross um, to pay the sin debt of everyone who would ever come to him in faith. 
And they placed his body in a tomb, and on the third day he resurrected, and later he ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. This Jesus that came and did these things offers forgiveness. He offers salvation. But we must turn from serving ourselves, from seeking our own glory, from being me-centered, and we must turn and submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, then I implore you to do that. Um, Turn to Him and you'll be saved. But Jesus goes on in the text and He says, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is strong language. Now, what this doesn't mean is that if you're a celebrity, right, or if you've just got a whole bunch of friends or anything like that, you're automatically going to hell. Um, That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that if all these sinful, God-hating people around you are puffing you up and exalting you, Pharisees, they're making much of you. In other words, they're giving you the reverence that I deserve. Uh, They've made an idol out of you because of your quote-unquote religious fidelity, then I'm going to smack you. That's what God is saying. God is a jealous God, and He will crush and destroy all the idols of men, including these Pharisees. And this is the point in the text where things get fun. Um, Because if you were to just skim through and read this passage, the things that come next would seem really disjointed. Um, If you didn't have an understanding of what was going on, it's like if you start in Luke 15, we're just hammering these Pharisees. Boom, boom, boom. Get into 16. Boom, boom, boom. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're talking about the law and the prophets, kingdom of God, heaven and earth passing away, and divorce. And you're like, what happened? You know, how did we go from there to here? What does this mean? But what I want to show you this morning is that every single one of these things is still connected. There is perfect harmony, and it meshes here. And you actually could draw, I I fact-check this, okay? You could go to Luke 15 and circle every heading in your Bible, and you could draw an arrow that points to verse 14, the first two words. Because it says, the Pharisees. Because every bit of this points to them. Um, that's ultimately what it's all about. But let's, let's keep reading, and I'll show you what I mean. Verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, this is the part where you get to participate, and I want you to. Uh, because in the Bibles that you and I hold this morning... We have 66 books that are divided into two sections or portions, whatever you want to call it. And and the one in the front part of the book is called the Old. Very good. And the one in the the back part of the book is called the New. Very good. Now, how convenient is this for us? Uh, We've got this thing laid out beautifully. It's got headings and chapters and numbers. And um, this thing's sweet. I mean, it's pretty easy to navigate, right? But back in their day... They didn't have any of this. This didn't exist yet as we have it today. And so whenever we read Jesus say here, the law and the prophets, we need to understand that what he's talking about is what we understand today to be the Old Testament. Um, It was the writings before the New Testament, the New Covenant. Um, And why is he talking about the Old Testament? Why is he talking about the law and the prophets? What what did he just get done saying? Right? He just made the point... um, that these Pharisees are trying to justify themselves before men. Do you see the connection yet? How, how did they justify themselves before men? External obedience to the law, right? To what they understood as the Old Testament. They had this piety. They did these rituals. That's what he's talking about. And even though we know that these Pharisees at this point in time, they have absolutely mangled God's law. 
um, at this point in human history. They have added to the law. They've taken away from it. They've wrongly interpreted things. It was a, it was a hot mess. But it is undeniable that the Pharisees, to one degree or another, they did have an external obedience to the law. But that was their problem, and we've already touched on this, but it was mechanical. It was, um, it was all external, and it was not authentic. They didn't have a true love for God. Well, what Jesus is telling them here is that the, the things you're looking for, um, looking to, rather, for your justification before men are misguided. That's what he's saying, and why is that? Well, look at what he says. He says, because they were until John. Until the law and the prophets were until John. That's what Jesus says. Now, whatever you do with this, however you understand the text that follow this, what is clear is that John is some sort of a marker of a pivot point. That's what he's saying here. Something changes with John the Baptist. Um, and I honestly think this is pretty straightforward, but let's, let's just look at it. Because after Malachi, Israel went a, a, a 400-year um, span of silence. There was, no, there was no prophet risen up during that period. Um, basically, God was silent to them. And then seemingly out of nowhere, here's this wild guy out in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating all this crazy stuff, right? John the Baptist, who was foretold about in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 as a prophet that would prepare the way for the Lord. And he steps on the scene, and what does John preach? The kingdom of God. That's his message. Repent, the kingdom's here. So, even though John is written about in our New Testament, we need to understand that he was still functioning as a mouthpiece for God during the Old Testament period. So that makes John the Baptist an Old Testament prophet, okay? And what was the focus? Again, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And ultimately, he ushered in the true and greatest prophet of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. So John marks a shift in redemptive history. Jesus says here that the law and the prophets were until John. And then what? Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And we need to understand too that, that because they, they were familiar with the law and the prophets, they would have been familiar with this coming kingdom as well. Like when John arrives preaching the kingdom of God, this was not a new concept to these people. It wasn't like, kingdom of God, what's he talking about? No, there was, there was Old Testament writings all over the place pointing to this kingdom and this king. Um, and just a couple for the sake of time, but if you're taking notes, you can go look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can look at Daniel chapter 2, and you can look at Isaiah chapter 9. These are just a few texts that speak of this coming king and this coming kingdom that will never end. But what we need to grasp is that Jesus is telling these guys here, uh, these Pharisees he's speaking to in Luke 16, that this long foretold of kingdom is literally right in front of you and you're missing it. You've missed it. He says the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now, I had to really dig into this because on the surface, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. I was like, what does it mean that everyone forces his way into it? And here's what I found. This is extremely difficult still, even among really smart people. It's people that are way smarter than me. Um, now, I'm no Greek scholar, but what the consensus take on this is that this is actually one of the most extremely um, difficult verses to translate in the entire Bible because of the way that the wording is structured, the actual Greek text um, and translators truly are all over the place in terms of what this means. If you read five commentaries, you're probably going to get five different um, interpretations of this verse and what it means. So, with all that being said, this morning you're going to get the TDV, right? The, the Travis Drum version. And 
here's the thing. If you study this out, if you look at it later and you come away thinking that means something totally different than what you said, that's okay. And I also reserve the right to repent and change my mind at any time. But with that being said, when he says everyone forces his way into it, I believe what he's communicating here is that among the people that are coming into the kingdom, they are doing so with a great amount of enthusiasm. I think that's what he means, and I'll tell you why. When he says everyone, obviously he's not teaching universalism. He's not saying everybody in the whole world's coming into the kingdom. Um, he's not saying every person is saved, because if he meant that, if he meant every person without distinction, then this conversation with the Pharisees wouldn't even be happening. It would be unnecessary, right? Because they'd be in the kingdom just like everybody else is. So we can't understand everyone to mean that, mean that um, way. We could understand it more like you and I would say, I tried to get a cup of coffee yesterday morning and everyone in Jonesboro was at Shadrach's, right? It doesn't mean every person without distinction. We understand language has nuance. It has differences. Um, so why would everyone have to force their way into the kingdom? That's the question. Is there an obstacle? Is there something like holding them out? Is that what's going on? No, um, Jesus isn't even necessarily talking about what one has to do to enter the kingdom. That's not what's in focus here. But what he is talking about is the zeal or the attitude, or in Arkansas, we might call it the want to, right, that is required to enter the kingdom. The New King James, and don't tell Zach Davis I said this because I'll never live it down, but it translates this verse better in my opinion because it says everyone is pressing into it. Everyone is pressing into it. So if you've ever been Black Friday shopping, anybody ever done that? You've, you've sat outside of Target, JCPenney, one of these big stores, then you know the picture. These people are camped out there in droves uh, waiting to get in, waiting to get these deals. And, and what happens whenever Target or whoever, what happens when they open that door? Mayhem. Right, yeah. They get like chaos. Everybody's just trying to get in there as fast as they can so that they can go get their goods. Well, you know what they're doing when they're doing that? They are pressing in. They are pressing in to get into that store because they want it. They want in there. And that's what I think Jesus means here about the kingdom of God. He's saying to these Pharisees, with the arrival of John came the kingdom of God. And everybody's eager to get in, but not you. Not you guys. You care more about clinging to your old system and appearing righteous before men than you do about coming into the kingdom and having true righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what I believe he's saying here. Now, when, whenever I began this sermon, I spoke about pessimistic eschatology and how much of that is derived from, verses, uh, from the verses about heaven and earth passing away. And there are several of them. Um, but let's read verse 17. It says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So what people want to do with this verse right here is they want to they couple it with language used in places like Matthew 24, where he talks about a coming day when the sun, moon, and stars will not give their light. Right? So they take heaven and earth pass away, sun, moon, and stars won't give their light. Okay, we have to conclude here Jesus is going to destroy everything. He's going to burn this thing up. And that's what they'll hold to. That's the way they interpret this. And although on the surface, if you and I didn't know our Old Testament maybe very well, maybe we never got in the Greek, we just read it in English, um, maybe that's a viable option. But I contend to you this morning that it's not. Um, I believe that that is a wrong interpretation, and I want to show you why. Um, for starters, the Bible is a book that is full of symbolism. 
full of symbolism. It's literally everywhere. And to truly understand what certain texts and what certain phrases mean, we have to understand how they were used in the Old Testament. And we have to use, and here's the thing, we have to use Jewish language the way the Jews did. We don't get to hijack something they said that meant something specific and then twist it into some American version that has nothing to do with that. For example, when Jesus spoke of the sun, moon, and stars, this was not new to these Jewish people. They had heard this before. For example, Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10 say, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. What do we have here? Judgment. What does he say next? For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Well, this text in Isaiah was written as a prophecy about judgment on Babylon a whole, whole long time ago. And yet, I bet when you all pulled in, you noticed that there was this big yellow ball up there that we call the sun. And I bet last night if you stepped outside, there were stars and a moon too. So did God lie? Did this happen? Of course it happened. Um, Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met a Babylonian? Neither have I, because God smacked them. So what we have to do is interpret this as judgment language. It's symbolism. It's pictorial. God is saying to Babylon, I'm going to knock your lights out. That's the meaning. It isn't literal. And I contend to you this morning, having said that, that neither is heaven and earth. This isn't literal either. This phrase symbolizes or it represents something. It's pictorial language. And what I believe it represents is the Old Covenant structure and authority. And let's get in and talk about that. Because in Deuteronomy 31, um, verse 30, through Deuteronomy 32.1, so there's two verses there. It's just broken weird. But what we see is this. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished. In the ears of all the assembly of Israel, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Now, do literal heaven and earth have ears? No. Verse 30 tells us that he spoke these words in the ears of the assembly of Israel. In the ears of the assembly of Israel. So he is calling Israel here the heavens and the earth. Um, Another one is Isaiah 1, verses 1 and 2. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Here it is, speaking to Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So again, here we see Israel referred to as the heavens and the earth. God calls them that. And if you actually make it down in in, um, Isaiah 1 to verse 10, he sheds a little more insight into this specific phrase. Isaiah 1.10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Okay, so in this verse, Isaiah references Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember back to verse 1 and 2, he said his children have rebelled against him. That's the picture. He's calling them a rebellious people. And he likens the heavens to the rulers of Sodom, these are parallel passages, and the, and the earth to the people of Gomorrah. So we can understand the heavens and the earth in this context to describe the totality of a nation. It's, it's the rulers and the people that are under those rulers, the heavens and the earth. It's a picture. 
Now, these are just a couple of examples, but this theme of, of especially earth and sea, but heavens and earth too, it runs all over this Bible. And I actually mentioned this whenever I preached on the parable of the lost sheep a few weeks ago, that Israel is always pictured as the earth or the land, and the Gentiles are always pictured as the sea. Um, it's all over the place. But what we need to understand is it is symbolic. This is symbolic language. So back to Luke. Just like the sun, moon, and stars was not Jesus saying physical creation is going to be burned up, right? It was a symbol. Jesus is not saying here that the heavens and the earth, physical, literal creation, is going to pass away. He's saying that the old covenant people, structure, and authority are. And we need to understand that even though the new covenant was instituted at Christ's death, the old covenant was still around for a little while after that. I believe approximately 40 years, but that's neither here nor there. But I'll tell you why I believe that. Because the author of Hebrews tells us it's about to end. And I know this is technical, but stay with me. If you're taking notes, if you want to punch them in your phone, whatever. But Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Okay, if we stop right there, that sounds like literal creation, right? But he keeps writing. He says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. Okay, and he says, But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Talking about God. But the author of Hebrews in this text is quoting Psalm 102. And, and here we really need to answer the question, What does David mean? What was his intention when he spoke of the heavens and the earth wearing out like a garment that would be changed? What do you mean, David? Well, the word that the author of Hebrews uses there in verse 11 for this phrase, it's one word for this whole phrase, they will all wear out. They will all wear out. It's the Greek word, um, paliao, probably saying that wrong. But that same word for they will all wear out is used in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, which says this, in speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. So if we're talking about a new covenant, what's the first covenant? The old one. And he says, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this same phrase in the Greek is used for the wearing out of the heavens and the earth by the same author in the same book where that phrase is used for the becoming obsolete of the first or the old covenant. Furthermore, one other thing from Hebrews 8.13, the author says, speaking of that old covenant, that it is ready to vanish, or we might translate it ready to pass away. Okay, well that Greek word for that, for ready to vanish, ready to pass away, is the same word Jesus uses himself in Matthew 5.18 when he speaks of heaven and earth passing away. So, again, we see that same Greek word used for the heavens and the earth passing away as we do for the old covenant passing away. Well, check this out, okay? Jesus in, in um, Matthew 5 and Luke 16 speaks of the heavens and the earth passing away. Well, we would date this in the early 30s AD when Jesus was in his public ministry. So early 30s. Hebrews, which I believe was probably written 65-ish AD, but most people agree it was early to mid-60s. Um, Hebrews tells us that the heavens and the earth is ready to vanish away. It's ready um, to pass away. Well, what does it mean that it's ready to? That gives us a hint of the timing, right? Jesus said they were going to pass away. The author of Hebrews says they're ready to pass away in the mid-60s. Well, what happened in 70 AD? 
probably just a few years after that book was written. The Roman armies invaded Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. They killed over a million Jewish people and by doing so, they fundamentally destroyed Judaism as these old covenant people had always known it. There, today, there is no sacrificial system in play. There is no temple. They have no gene- genealogical record, so they could never again have a true priesthood, and they're not rightly observing religious feasts. These professing Jews today, regardless of what they tell you, they are not observing the same religion that their fathers did. It is completely different, just like Jesus said it would be. So, back to Luke. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that John the Baptist is the pivot point for this whole thing. He says the law and the prophets were until John. That's a timing indicator. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since when? Since John, um, the kingdom of God is preached. And then he follows that and says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Or knowing what we know now, we could say he's telling the Pharisees, it's easier for you to vanish or for you to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Make sense? Still in context, we're still talking to and about the Pharisees. Now, that whole one dot thing, that means just a tiny little dot of ink written in the law. Um, He's saying even the smallest, most insignificant part, just a tiny little marking like a pen dot. Um, Well, why on earth would he bring up the law becoming void? Why is Jesus talking about this? Because becoming void would mean that the law would cease to either have authority or or that it would cease uh, to exist. Basically, it would disappear. Well, why would he even suggest that? Well, if we look at Matthew 5, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, same phrase, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So according to that verse, a dot or an iota, that's just a tiny little marking, same thing, could pass away from the law once heaven and earth pass away. We good there? Are you tracking with me? So these two verses in Luke 16 and Matthew 5, they go together. And so the big question that we need to answer is, if any part of the law was going to fall away or vanish after Israel was destroyed, how do we, as the New Testament church, as followers of Jesus Christ, How do we understand the law today? Probably not much different than we already do. Um, And I want to break this down for you. But I do think that probably we have a grasp on the end result of this, even if we don't know how we got there. But, for example, I'd be willing to bet that none of you have an issue with somebody eating shrimp or crab legs or crawdads. Right? We're all good on that. Me and Samuel tore some up a few weeks ago. Um, I, I bet that it's probably likely that some of us in here are wearing dual blend material, you know, shirt, pants, whatever. That was forbidden in the old law. And I don't know of a single one of you, I could be wrong, but I don't know of a single one of you ever stoning somebody to death for picking up sticks on a Saturday. Okay? So all of us, to one degree or another, we somewhat have an understanding that these things don't apply to us. Right? But the question is, why? That's what we have to answer. And the way that I would have answered this question had you asked me three or four months ago, would have been. I would appoint you to what theologians call the threefold division of the law, um, which is what I I believe in my research was made famous by Thomas Aquinas back in the 1200s. But Aquinas taught that the Old Testament law was divided into three divisions, three sections. So you had the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Have y'all heard this? Are we familiar with this terminology? Yeah. And And that we as Christians are only bound today by the moral law. That's what Aquinas taught. That's what most people teach and believe. 
Well, that's all well and good, except you cannot find that threefold division actually taught anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. Uh, When these guys are writing about the law, they're writing about the whole law, about the whole thing. And so while I don't agree necessarily in terms of how we got there, I do agree that Aquinas was on to something. And I'll tell you why. But we as Christians, we don't hold to the moral aspect of the law just because they were in the Old Testament. We hold to them today because Jesus and his apostles taught them. Um, In fact, nine of the Ten Commandments, I thought this was neat, I didn't know this. Nine of the Ten Commandments, which are considered to be what? The moral law, they are either explicitly or implicitly taught and affirmed in the New Testament. Nine of the ten. The only one that isn't is honoring the Sabbath day. Um, And I think an excellent case can be made from Hebrews 4 that that specific commandment is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. But the other nine are actually taught in the New Testament. So, do we as Christians hold to the moral aspects of the law? Absolutely we do, because Jesus Christ taught them. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, get this, heaven and earth will pass away. Same thing. What are we saying there? Old covenant will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, this old covenant's going away, but my teaching's going to last forever. And this is what I believe Paul talked about in Galatians 6, 2, when Paul told them to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? Well, most scholars agree that in that, what what Paul is referring to is what Jesus taught in Mark 12, when they come to him and they're like, teacher, what's, what's the greatest commandment? And how does Jesus respond? In Mark 12, 28, 31, in summary, he says the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor which is a summary of what? The Ten Commandments, right? So, you and I hold to these moral imperatives today because Jesus taught us to. And that's what I believe he's getting out here. Now, let's get back to verse 18, and we'll button this thing up. It says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this is another section where if we're not familiar with our Old Testament, um, we'll be like, this makes no sense at all. Because in the middle of all this judgment language, right, it's judgment on the Pharisees, boom, 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 all of a sudden we're talking about divorce. And you're like, where does this come from? Well, there's a dual reason, I believe. Um, So on the one hand, history records for us that the Pharisees at this time, like I said earlier, they had mangled the law of God. At this time, they had followed the teachings of a guy named Rabbi Hillel, who taught that a man could divorce his wife for any trivial reason. And literally, this is a history records for us. Hillel taught, if a woman burns your supper, you can divorce her. And silly things like this. So basically, um, what you had going on was a bunch of divorce and remarriage among the religious leaders. Now, the Bible does teach that divorce is permissible in certain cases, like adultery and, I believe, abandonment as well. But these people were divorcing their wives for any reason. Just, this old girl over here is prettier, right? So I'm leaving this one to go marry her. Well, that is baseless, and that is contrary to what God taught. Um, And so Jesus reaffirms the biblical teaching on marriage here, and he's calling them out on more of their sinfulness. But we get that? He is still going at the Pharisees. There's not a break in that. But there is another reason why he's talking about this. Right after he's talking about the heavens and the earth passing away, okay? In both Hosea 5 and Jeremiah 3, we get the imagery that God is going to divorce or destroy Israel. 
because of her adulteries. And I believe Jesus is talking about here because it's not too long from now that he's getting ready to finalize that divorce. Um, This is more judgment language, and again, it fits absolutely perfectly with the flow of everything else he's been talking about. He is implying to the Pharisees here that they have been unfaithful to him. They have committed adultery. They're running around all over the place with these invalid divorces, sleeping around, committing adultery, and God is saying, my divorce is valid. It has a basis. You have played the harlot. And so he's getting ready to put them away and take for himself a new bride, the church. Revelation 21.2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And who is her husband? If you go down to verse 9 in Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the wife of Jesus. So he takes the church as his bride. Now back to Luke. What is our big takeaway from all this this morning? What do we walk away from after spending 40 minutes talking about God's judgment on the Pharisees? You know... What do we do with this? We hope. We hope. We walk away with hope and with motivation. And here's why. Because if the heavens and the earth doesn't mean that one day everything we know is just going to burn up, like if it doesn't mean that God's going to destroy this thing one day, then that is huge for you and me. And I'll tell you why, at least in my opinion. It's because the post-millennial hope is true. God doesn't just win at the end of human history. God wins throughout human history. You and I are not sitting on a sinking ship, polishing the brass. We are not supposed to just be sitting around on our hands waiting to get raptured out of here, right? What this means for us is that in Isaiah chapter 9, when Jesus, or when it tells of Jesus, that of the increase of his governance and of peace, there will be no end. That's true. Or in Psalm 2, when the Father says to the Son, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's true too. And this ought to influence the way we think. This ought to change the way that we view our children and our children's children and our neighbor. This is why we're motivated to start schools and plant churches. This is why we want to catechize our children, raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord so that we can turn them into sharp arrows that we shoot out into that godless world to the glory of God. This right here changes everything for us. So, if anyone here doesn't know the Lord, I hope that you can see um, that when God promises judgment, He is just to carry that judgment out. Um, You need to know that because of your sin, you have heaped up God's judgment on your head But this God, this Jesus, also offers forgiveness to those who are found in Him, to those that are found in Christ. And so, you can turn from your sin this morning and come to Christ by faith, and you will be saved. And to the believer, in light of what we've heard this morning, my question to you is simply this. What are you going to do about it? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. How are you going to water it? Christ is the better prophet and the better priest and the better king. He is the true and better Adam, and he brought in a better covenant. How will you and I respond and serve him with our lives? That's what we have to ask this morning. We talked about how God created everything with purpose. Will you find yours and then execute it for the sake of God and for the sake of Christ's gospel? To quote the great philosopher Eminem, he once said, you only get one shot. 
So I pray that you would use your one shot to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. Would you please stand this morning and let's pray.